Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage. This week, we speak with pop singer Sophie Elise Baxter. I started collaborating with a friend of mine who is a singer-songwriter in his own right called Ed Harcourt. And we just found that we work together very easily. We have a lot of fun and we really like the work that we produce together. Plus, we are at the opening of a groundbreaking factory in Finland that is producing a revolutionary wood-based fibre for the textile industry. Using a patented and highly protected process, this factory is, to put it simply, able to turn trees into clothing. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with a highlight from the Monaco Daily. The Troubles was an almost three-decade-long conflict in Northern Ireland, fought broadly between Catholic Republicans in favor of a united Ireland and Protestant Unionists who wanted to remain part of the UK. An international agreement secured peace in 1998, but some of the sectarian tensions that led to the Troubles remain. Still, even the basic facts are contested. Many in mainland Britain remain largely ignorant of the conflict that raged within the borders of the UK for nearly 30 years. A new exhibition at London's Imperial War Museum wants to change that. Northern Ireland, living with the Troubles, is the result of five years of work by its curator, Craig Murray, and is based on extensive interviews with people on both sides. Monaco's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, went to the exhibition opening day and met with Craig to find out more. Northern Ireland is a country in the northeast of Ireland. It is part of the United Kingdom. The Troubles was a conflict fought over what Northern Ireland is and what it should be. You have the intro film here where um, we sort of run you through a quick 400 years of history with a lot of bits missed out. Um, this is largely because we kind of wanted to go up to the, the situations in the 60s but show the underlying tensions that have always been there. When we did front-end evaluation a, couple, a year or two ago with uh, focus groups, we found that the level of understanding around the Troubles in Northern Ireland, Irish history in general, was really much lower than even we'd hoped for. So we had to go. We went and sort of wrote this in a way that hopefully makes it relatively simple to get into, even though it's not simple. Hence, why it sort of glides through 400 years in four minutes, which is. You'd like to do more, but nobody's going to sit and watch it for 10, 15 minutes. And they'll just be like, sorry, who are these guys again? Um, so. or, or, or indeed the 10 or 15 hours you could do. <laughs> Next door is the start, right, the start of the Troubles, and that was used because it, people talk with such a, almost diametrically opposing views on that event because they saw it from different sides of the community as young men, as boys in some cases. So rather, rather than talk about the events so much, it was more about how people got through life, how they viewed each other, how they, why they joined paramilitary groups, why they were in the army, why they, the police, why they saw each other, how they attempted to get through life and how their, um, their normal would have been abnormal to MD over here. To bring that out that people in Northern Ireland lived a very different life. These places may have looked the same, but they were very different, exactly. And um, the objects themselves 
have a contested narrative. To be able to engage in armed actions against human beings, you have to depersonalise them. So to me, I viewed the RUC, the British Army, and all other operators within the state as nothing more than targets. Anyone can shoot a target. Well, we're looking at a poster now which does seem somewhat incongruous in this setting. It has a very cheerful looking red squirrel called Tufty on it. Right. Through the 70s and 80s, Tufty was very familiar to children in the UK. He was basically a sort of road safety squirrel. It would be animated sort of public information films where he would teach children where to cross at roads and zebra crossings and not to step out from behind ice cream vans and things. Um, but he's been repurposed here to tell children not to pick up things in the street because there were many explosives left about, harmful objects. So it's a much more darker scenario for Tuf Tufty than the general road safety. He's, he's been repurposed for what Northern Irish children's reality would be with the fact that there are dangerous explosives or just objects left lying around from the troubles. I'll start by asking about the timing, not so much the, the near coincidence of the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreements, but the fact that it's 2023 and this is the first time the Imperial War Museum has gone this big on a war that actually happened within the borders of the United Kingdom. Uh, why do you think it has taken that long for the, the museum to address it in this depth? It's hard to say. It's possibly maybe a change of management at the top decided maybe it's a subject we need to deal with more. It has been dealt with tangentially, if you will, in other exhibitions, but actually given it full representation. I think it's possibly how you tackle it, um, what angle do you take when you deal with it. And also, as you say, it's a war within, or a conflict, however people want to describe it, within the boundaries of the UK, which I think makes it a more difficult thing to take on. Um, I think it's easier to be dispassionate about other people's wars and deal with them than it is with your own. And because it's so contested and also because it's the biggest involvement of British troops since the Second World War. 250,000 soldiers went through Northern Ireland over the near 30 years. So it, it can seem very close, but very distant at the same time. But on that thought of how you approach it, I mean, it, it's true of all conflicts to an extent, but Northern Ireland, like no other I know of, that conflict where two people will point at the exact same thing and give you two completely descriptions of it, whether it's an image or an object or an event. When you came to negotiating that obvious fact of this exhibition, did, did you have any kind of overarching philosophy as, as to how you would approach that? I think it was a case of letting people tell their truth uh, without judging them on it, ask them the question and let them tell you what they thought. And you kind of knew when you spoke to people, other people and asked similar questions, you would get a very different view on that. But that was kind of what I wanted to show that when the visitor comes through, they're going to hear people disagreeing completely. And I think you try as a museum, well, what I've tried to do is let them tell the story rather than the Imperial War Museum tell the story. I mean, obviously, I've, we facilitate it. I wrote curators' panels. You can't be completely hands-off, um, short of basically allowing them to do the exhibition on their own. But um, I think it was to try and stand back as much as I could and just let them tell that, whether that um, annoys people or not. I think it was basically trying to take any thoughts or opinions I had as far out of that mix as I could by just letting them tell their side of it, let their story, and not sort of button in and saying, ah, but. And so you, you kind of... 
it's let them talk without judgment is how I've decided to do it. But it's much more difficult to shoot Bran, who has three children and likes golf and does a bit of charity work, keen hill runner and probably reads the same books as you. So you don't think of Bran, you simply think of a defender of a rotten, corrupt and unjust system. The actors in a conflict have to distance themselves from the humanity of their enemy, but in doing that you diminish your own humanity. The interviews you've done for this are all new and all done within those last few years where you've been putting this exhibition together. Did you get the sense, and this may have been valuable to the exhibition, that these are not the interviews that the same subjects would have given if they'd given them 10, 15, 20 years ago, that people now have a bit of distance on what happened and their own actions and their own motivations? I think that's probably true. I think the thing with oral histories is, depending on when you ask people, people's views, their memories change. Um, human human memory isn't uh, infallible, and people over time may have, you know, you take on different opinions or ideas from evidence that may come out. So your opinions may change over time, or the way you you look at these things may be more dispassionate because the time between them happening and now gives you a bit more perspective. So I think it's possibly entirely possible if we'd done these interviews 15, 20 years ago, they may A, not have been so willing to talk about it, or B, they may have given different opinions on events. Maybe they're more entrenched in some mm -hmm. things, perhaps. I think it's the interesting thing about oral testimonies is it's collecting them and sort of working out what people say, you know, try to validate it against what is known and what is opinion and what is memory, I think. The Good Friday Agreement, signed in 1998, ensures a fragile peace is maintained to this day, but it is not resolved. And from the Chiefs this week, Monaco's editorial director, Tyler Brulé, was joined by Thiago Alonso de Oliveira, CEO of JHSF, the leading company when it comes to Brazil's high-income property industry. Let's have a listen to their chat. I thought we should start broad. We're speaking to you in Brazil. Uh, you're at uh, one of your airports. And maybe we sort of launch on a bit of a macro level. We are out of a pandemic right now, new government in Brazil. How are you feeling as a business leader, business owner, and of course, someone who represents, for many, one of the most interesting retail players in Latin America? Well, I think that we learned a lot through the deepest years on pandemic, and we are ending this cycle much stronger and bigger than we entered. So we are facing the coming years that will bring additional growth opportunities for us, and more important, with the company and our team more concentrated into delivering quality of life to our clients. So we, we think that the lessons learned made us stronger than uh, how we were before. You're quite a unique operation because 
anyone, of course, who's familiar with your operations, that might be someone who checks in as a guest into one of the hotel properties you own. They, of course, might uh, be an owner uh, on, on, of course, one of your estates. They might be a tenant in, in one of your malls. You mentioned the word quality of life, and there is you're very unique in this very focused concentration on on all that is that is premium. And if I think about the first time that I visited one of your hotels, the first time that, of course, that I, I went to your malls in Sao Paulo, it was a unique time. And I'm talking probably, I guess, a decade ago. This was this golden moment in Brazil. Everyone was flocking to Brazil. There was extraordinary energy. And of course, for a variety of reasons, we know that things change. How do you feel looking out across the horizon right now, just as, of course, a retailer, property owner, and many other things, your take on on the market? Because, of course, Brazil being one of the world's biggest economies, I think everyone is sort of almost rooting for the place to, to make this comeback. Well, definitely. We define ourselves as a company that works on luxury lifestyle for clients. So uh, in that sense, all the measures uh, and the decisions that we are taking, they are putting client first. And alongside with client being first, we also committed as providers of uh, retail or hospitality, gastronomy, any of our products, that quality and excellence has to come alongside in order to deliver to the client and his or her family improvement in terms of quality of life. So this is the mindset of the company that is really different than the bulk of the other players that are in the market right now. So we think long-term, we play hard to deliver quality and we are committed to improve the standards of our clients. If I may summarize, those are the three key elements that on the day-to-day of the company are representing most of the difference that, that we are doing. So when we think about cycles, and you referred to maybe 10 or 15 years ago, what I can say is that we just improved from there. We grew the size of our operations, uh, uh, regardless of the, the business units that we are taking care. And over time, that luxury lifestyle became something more connected through JHSF than how it was 15 years ago. So we're at, of course, a transition point. If you look out across the the next year ahead, the next two year heads, and maybe we'll come back to new projects and things that you're working on, what's your take on the sentiment and the mood in, in the market? How is the Brazilian consumer feeling? And are you also feeling and seeing a return of international clients as well? Well, first, international clients is not a big portion, and if I may say, is not uh, that much relevant uh, for Brazil, different than uh, other countries uh, in the world. So for a lot of the things that we do in Brazil is mostly uh, for Brazilians. In that sense, we are experimenting a period that the, the fulfillment that our clients are leaving through the recent delivered projects from the company positioned ourselves as the company that they go to when they are looking to the places where they want to live, uh, connected to the consumption solutions for their day-to-day necessities, as well as how they are getting entertaining 
and in some cases also how they are traveling. And so we were able to build uh, 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 the connections on very elementary things of the day-to-day of uh, our clients, meaning uh, housing, consumption, entertainment, and travel. Tiago, maybe tell us a little bit about the mindset of the the Brazilian consumer these days, because as as you said, you could look back 10, 15 years ago, of course, even today as well, uh, you come across a lot of your core customers all over the world, the high spending Brazilians that every hotelier loves, of course, every luxury goods shop owner loves to see them arriving. But what's interesting is because if I think about it in a mall context, you have a lot of international brands, which largely think about the same type of consumer all over the world who wants to buy good footwear, they want to buy a lovely suit, they want to buy a great handbag. But if you think about the peculiarities or the particularities of a Brazilian customer versus an American, versus French, versus Japanese, what are the expectations? Um, What do you have to deliver to a Brazilian consumer, which you think is probably different than maybe someone who's shopping in Val Harbor or uh, who who might be shopping in Saint-Germain in Paris? I think that what make our services standards different is warmth. So when when we introduced our hotel in New York, most of the feedbacks that we received was uh, a positive surprise in terms of the warmth of our personnel. The same uh, feedback we receive when we when we host in Brazil foreigners traveling to Brazil for the first time. This is very peculiar about Brazilians. In terms of mood, if I may say, I think that over time, our clients, Brazilian clients, they have realized that part of their value recognition is not connected to a to the brand per se, but is connected to a certain store or, or even closer than this, to a certain salesperson at a certain store from a certain brand. So that connection, that relationship using the salesperson as a kind of an ambassador for the brand to the client and how that connection between the brand and the client can open doors for more selective products that are not openly available to all the clients. And this is very specific for luxury. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator here on Monaco Radio. And now Monaco's Helsinki correspondent, Patry Burtsov, reports from the opening of the new Woodspin factory in Finland. This joint venture between the Brazilian raw material provider, Suzano, and the Finnish sustainable material company, Spinova, has led to a revolutionary wood-based fiber that is revolutionizing the textile industry. This nondescript industrial area, a short drive south from the center of Juvaskula in central Finland, makes for an unlikely setting for the next fashion revolution. 
The surrounding verdant birch tree forests and the sleek wooden facade of the woodspin factory are subtle hints of what awaits on the inside. It is quite possibly the biggest transformation of the fashion industry since the spinning machine. Using a patented and highly protected process, this factory, which is a joint venture between the Finnish Spinnova and the Brazilian pulp producer Suzano, is, to put it simply, able to turn trees into clothing. It's a little bit more technical than this, but you get the idea. Let's go inside and take a look. The opening celebrations are in full swing, champagne flows, and a crowd of fashion journalists, investors and clothing designers are getting an introduction into what this factory can do. But let's move inside the actual factory and see how it all works. Okay, so we're standing uh, in a large industrial hall that I guess the best way to describe it would be is it looks like a scaled-up chemistry set. It really just looks like a, a giant chemistry set built into into this uh, large industrial hall. And this is really the where all the different stages of the of the production of the fiber take place when the cellulose pulp is turned into textile fiber. To the next. Uh, stop where you will actually see how this pulp is converted to microfibrillated cellulose and, and how that looks. My name is Christian Orgelmeister. I'm the chairman of Woodspin and also the executive director at Suzano, leading our new bio business development and corporate strategy. At the plant here, we, we essentially we receive the pulp that is produced in Brazil. So in Brazil we have the planted trees that we harvest. We transform them into pulp. We dry them and ship them here overseas. We receive them here. And then we transform this pulp into what we call MFC, microfibrillosed cellulose, which is essentially uh, grinding and, and refining those, this initial pulp into smaller fibers. And this uh, is what Susano provides into a wood spin and wood spin, which is a JV between Suzano and Spinova, we take this MFC and we further uh, grind it to very small fibers and then we reconstruct the fiber and we blow it through nozzles uh, through uh, with, with Spinova technology and these nozzles they blow out very fil uh, you know, filaments and uh, natural filaments that then become hard, uh, garments uh, later on. So this is the process in a nutshell of what we do. But you can see the robot uh, making a change to the screen. It's going to come briefly, like very quickly, but it's going to give you an idea about how it to get a better idea of the environmental impact of the textile industry and how the sustainable fiber produced in this factory can help, I caught up with Shariar Mahmoud, Spinova's head of sustainability. I think the major challenge is the waste. We are producing a lot, lot of waste. If we see in the textile processing, we have a lot of chemistry involved. The textile industry, one of the top polluter, water pollution is happening through the textile processing. Uh, considering all those things, I think Spinnova has the potential, let's say, uh, that uh, we, if we can, let's say, I have been giving the example of dope dyeing. If it is already a colored fiber, you don't need to dye 
later, it means that you have a significant savings in the water consumption, at the same time wastewater, that you don't need to produce the wastewater as such. So considering all this pollution we are creating, we really need solution that actually reduces the environmental impact, especially in the process level. That's, that's I think, the uh, great, great advantage. And from the product level, also we really need that which has less footprint during the production stage. At the same time, we need also to consider the life cycle, the whole, whole, whole life cycle, end of the life, meaning that if it is discarded, where it is going. So Spinnova fiber or product made out of Spinnova is biodegradable. Of course, we don't want to end it up to the landfill. We want it to use it as a raw material. We often say Spinnova is the best raw material for Spinnova process in the future. We will be doing so that the Spinnova we will be getting and recycling it again. So Spinnova fiber itself is fully recyclable. Next, it was time to leave the factory floor and head upstairs to see what clothes made of trees look and feel like. I'm Ben Selby. I'm the interim CEO at Spinova. And we have now been on the factory floor and we're now making our way upstairs to look at some products that have been made using the Spinova fiber. So, so let's go upstairs. Right, okay, Ben, so what are we looking at here? I see we have, uh, we have at least an Adidas uh, hoodie. Yeah, that's right. We've got an Adidas uh, Terex hoodie that was released uh, last year to the market, and it's a, a blend of organic cotton and spinova fiber. And then we've got a Marimekko jacket here. That's uh, uh, This one's a weave. Uh, the, the Adidas hoodie is a knit um, product. And uh, the Marimekko was also released uh, last year, and it was the first time that we uh, had a pattern uh, dye put onto the, the woven fabric, so quite a nice touch to that. And then one of the earliest, or actually one of the latest collaborations here with Halti, which is a um, Parker jacket and uh, is also having a waterproof finish. So exciting collaboration with them. And the, and the feel of these products, I mean, um, for example, just trying how this Adidas uh, hoodie feels, it feels really soft and, and, and just like cotton, essentially. So is this, is this sort of the, the properties that the Spinova fiber has, that it's very much like cotton? That's right. It, it, it really feels like a natural fiber, and that's one of the things that differentiates it. So it's the mechanical process used to make it that makes that possible, and it really feels natural, but actually also has uh, a lot of very um, good thermal properties. So it, it's also actually quite a warm, warm hoodie, which is nice. Spinova's signature fiber in itself is not new and has been around for some years, even earning Monocle's own design award some years ago. But up until now, the company has produced only small quantities of it in their small pilot factory in Uvascula. Woodspin is the first time that this technology is used in a commercial factory with plans to scale the production up to a million tons per year. Even that is just a small fraction of what the global textile industry with the estimated value of approximately a trillion euros needs in order to clean up its act. But the fact that Spinova has already struck deals with the likes of Adidas, H&M, Bestseller and Marimekko speaks to the potential that the fashion industry sees in this new sustainable fibre. 
For Monocle in Jyväskylä, Finland, I'm Petri Burtsov. We are back here with the curator. Another interview I did this week was with the great Sophie Liz Baxter from Murder on the Dance Floor fame. She's about to release a new album called Hannah on the 2nd of June. She was a delight to talk to. You better not kill the groom, DJ. Gonna burn this goddamn house right down. Four, three, two, one. Sophie Liz Baxter, what a pleasure talking to you. I'm a big fan. And... Interesting enough, I just saw one of your gigs at Eurovision, and I have to ask you about that. Are you also a mm-hmm. big Eurovision fan, Sophie? I certainly am. I absolutely love Eurovision, and I think I think I was the most giddy for Eurovision I've ever been this year, given that I got to participate in a few things. It was really fun. Yeah, I loved it. When you were performing, there was a sunset behind you. I think Liverpool looked quite Balearic. It looks like we were in Spain, in a way, weather-wise. It's so true. It's, it was uncharacteristically warm, I have to say. <laughs> well, we are here to talk about your new album, which I listened and I thought it was great. And I just realized it's the end of a trilogy of albums, right, that you had. Can you remind us about this idea of a trilogy when it comes to those last three albums now? Yeah, so a few years back, I was making my first ever album independently, actually. And I started collaborating with a friend of mine who is a singer-songwriter in his own right called Ed Harcourt. And we just found that we work together very easily. We have a lot of fun and we really like the work that we produce together. So we did Wonderlust, where we took ourselves to a sort of Eastern European landscape. Then we went to an album called Familia. We went kind of Latin American. And then we had always planned on doing three records together. And so this is our third and final. This is Hannah, where we've kind of gone to Japan. And it's actually been a really nice way to work because it makes you quite focused. And I'm sure I will work with Ed again in the future. We're very close and my husband is his best friend and I'm friends with his wife, you know, so we spend a lot of time in each other's company. But I think we just quite liked the idea of doing one, two, three and seeing where it took us. And, you know, you mentioned East Asia, Japan as well. Did it all start because I believe you've been to Japan like for the first time 2019 or 2020 or something like that, right? Yeah, it was 2020 actually in sort of February, March. So literally just before Mm. the world tilted. So it was always going to be quite a significant trip, but then it took on extra significance. And then that became just quite a nice place to go to in my head, really, when I was writing, just to think about somewhere else, somewhere foreign. Yeah, I found it quite inspiring. And the song Tokyo is beautiful as well. I mean, thank you, you. Can you tell us a bit more about that one, actually? Well, the funny thing about the song that's called Tokyo is that I wrote it before I went. <laughs> I was trying oh, to really? imagine. Yeah, so I knew I was going and I was going with my mum and I was going with my eldest boy. And I wasn't supposed to be going. My stepdad was going to go. And in the end, he wasn't well enough to travel. So I went in his place. And the forecast was for rain, like the whole week. So that's why I wrote about the rain. And actually, when we got there, it didn't rain at all. But <laughs> but yeah, I was trying to imagine it before we went. That's actually one of my favorite in the album as well. And of course, I love everything sweet. You know, it's kind of I love the beats. And that, that's another fantastic track. It's 
just so nice to hear someone talk about the tracks because obviously it's still not out yet. So it's like, <laughs> it's exciting. Yeah. Well, I had a little preview here, so that's nice. Good. Sophie, I mean, you mentioned that you went to Japan right before COVID all yeah. started. We need to talk as well about your kitchen disco because that was magical for a lot of fans, including myself. Are we going to see more kitchen discos or some sort of variety of that, even though there's no COVID anymore? Oh, golly. I don't know. I mean, such a sort of strange time, such a strange chapter. Even now, I sort of struggle to articulate it because mm. it was the time when, on the one hand, so many people were coming over to our house through watching the discos on phones, on the computers, on the tellies. But in real life, we weren't seeing anybody. <laughs> it was a very personal thing, really, those discos, because they were under my roof. They're in my own kitchen. My kids were everywhere. Richard's filming it on his phone, my husband. Richard and I would work together on the playlist. So it was really quite special, but extraordinary. I don't know if the world needs to see any more of me prancing around in my leotard. <laughs> well, I feel like I've given enough. <laughs> UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. And now we hear from Monaco Radio's Gregory Scruggs. He heads to the Specialty Coffee Expo in Portland. I'm standing on the showroom floor of the Specialty Coffee Expo and I am surrounded by a dizzying array of coffee-making gizmos and packaging designs and cafe ware and, of course, the irresistible aroma of brewing coffee. Now, I've already made the rookie mistake of swallowing rather than spitting out the various coffees that I've tasted, so I'm a bit amped up right now. But my caffeine kick pales in comparison to the buzz of 12,000 delegates from 76 countries. They're making deals that will land new products in a coffee shop near you. And with 29 coffee-producing countries hosting booths, coffee farmers have traveled here from far and wide to show off their best beans. But as I learned, getting to the root of one of the world's most popular beverages is also a path worth exploring. My name is Teresita Jara, and I'm from Costa Rica. And you know, Costa Rica is a very touristic country. So we produce a lot of coffee there also. And there are many companies that uses coffee as an attraction for tourism also. Costa Rica is a small country. So you are three hours away from anywhere, from any place. If you are, for example, in San Jose, that is the capital, and you want to go to the beach, in less than three hours you are at the beach. Guanacaste is where the most beautiful beaches are in Costa Rica. So there are also some coffee farms, and they also have coffee tours. So if a person is coming to Costa Rica for a holiday and they want to visit a farm, they can find some farms in Guanacaste and they can also 
find some very good coffee shops there to visit with specialty coffee that they can try and experience with different flavors. The coffee from Guanacaste is sweeter. It's a medium high region, so it's not coffee produced in the mountains or anything, but the coffee is well balanced, uh, sweeter, with notes more like chocolate and not as citrus or with acidity that is high, that is something that other regions have, but it's sweeter and well balanced, so it's a very good coffee also. There is this very popular region, coffee producing region in Costa Rica called Los Santos, and they have been developing a lot of tourism around coffee because these are farms that have waterfalls, places to do hiking, for example. So Guanacaste is more like the beach, but if people want to go on hiking and go to waterfalls or the rivers or something like that, they can visit some of these coffee farms and they have the whole package, the whole tourism package to visit the farm, the coffee mill, and these beautiful waterfalls, for example. From the Costa Rica booth, I walked a few aisles over and hopped across the Atlantic to Kenya. Let's say you've booked your luxury safari on the Serengeti or a coastal cultural holiday to Mombasa. Why not round off your East African trip on a coffee estate? My name is Zakia Rose Mugay. The company is called Great Rift Coffee. We are based in Nandi, which is in the northwestern region of Kenya. It's a very emerging coffee area. Luckily, we haven't been affected too much by climate change as of yet, so we still have very good rainfall. Um, it's still a very luscious area, extremely fertile. We are actually so fertile that we end up getting two crops a year, which is very rare for a lot of producing countries. So what we have done to try and encourage more people to get into coffee, to know the processes, to understand how it's grown, we are doing coffee tours. So our farm is 82 acres. We also manage another about 32 farms in the area. But our farm is where we do um, the tours. So it starts from the very beginning. You see the plant, how it's grown. You have a walk around the whole estate with our agronomist. He'll show you the coffee at different stages, the different varieties that we also have. After that, you'll have a wet processing, which will occur on the farm. And then you can also see the naturals, how that's produced, which is a different alternative process. From there, the coffee is then transported to our own milling factory that we have, which is about an hour away. You'll then see the coffee being dried and how it is processed through the milling plant. At that point, our in-house coffee liquor will then go through the grading system of the coffee, how it is graded, how it's based on defects, etc. Then after that, you will take you to our roastery, which is in the same area. We'll show you how to roast, different roast profiles. In Kenya, we definitely prefer a lighter roast profile, which gets out a lot more of the floral, fruity flavors of the coffee. From that, you're free and welcome to try as much coffee as you like. Last but not least, I checked in with coffee powerhouse Indonesia, where an enterprising Javanese currently based in the Big Apple runs so-called origin trips to bring coffee lovers straight to the source. 
My name is Nora Suharman Wifo. I live in New York City as a roaster and also I'm an importer. My origin trip, we have two different types of, or two different uh, origins. One is in Sumatra and the second one is in Java Island where where my family from. If you go to like a coffee shop in, uh, you know, and uh, like everywhere, what you can order, you probably just order like caramel latte or like, you know, espresso. But in this origin trip, we don't have that type of thing. What we can offer is like coffee from like different species because like we have the seed for like a coffee plant and then it came like from a different species for example the name maybe like sounds kind of like not familiar but it is like the name is just like some people they really really recognize the name like for example like Ateng or like Kartika or like Sigara Utang or like S795 and stuff like that so those species you could try it could be like one origin but if it's a different type or different species and different processing methods, you can taste so much different flavor, though they came from like one origin. We're back here with the curator. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We're listening to the weekly highlights from Monaco Radio last week. This time we speak with Ruth E. Carter. The costume designer's work has garnered accolades, including two Oscars for the Black Panther franchise. She discusses her inspirations and process. I'm going to tell you like it really is. Every election year, these politicians are sent up here to pacify They're sent here and set up here by the white man. This is what they do. Let's start with some of your earlier films. Many of them are period movies, such as Malcolm X and the late Tina Turner biopic, What's Love Got to Do With It? What does your research process look like for these kinds of films? How do you ensure the historical accuracy of these public figures? I actually take each film uh, as an exploration uh, unto itself, and it always brings a unique style to the approach of the research, which is one of the most enjoyable parts of actually creating a, a biography, a movie about a person's life with Malcolm X. Um, it was 1992 when we created it. I knew that the Schomburg Center uh, for Research on Black American History was a wealth of information and images about New York in the 1940s. And I was very excited about going into their archives and seeing what the photographers of the time um, had done in this, you know, a wonderful collection in Harlem, New York. When I was a little girl, For Tina Turner, the research was right there with Tina Turner. I received all of her concerts, a family album of photographs of them at home, um, on the road. It was a plethora of information about her unique style as this rock icon. And I started to approach the films from this point of passion for the culture. 
and for what their lives were colored like, if you would. I never yielded. And as you can see, I am not dead. All that challenge shit is over with. I'm the king now. Get those planes in the air, carry out the mission. I want to talk about your work on the Black Panther series and its sequel, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, both of which saw you win an Oscar for Best Costume Design. Now, Marvel gave you quite specific design content for the suit of the main superhero T'Challa, as well as a document called the Wakanda Bible, all about the fictional African country Wakanda, and the creativity took off from there. There is functionality to think about with designing costumes as well as the appearance. So how do you ensure the costumes are practical for stunt work as well? Well, each uh, stunt player has a specific shoe that they have to wear in order to perform their specific type of stunt, whether it's martial arts or um, whatever it is. And they all come to you with every kind of a shoe, whether it's a boxing boot or a a Nike, you know, all type shoe. It runs the gamut. And you just wonder how it's going to play inside of the frame that we have uh, for the Panther suit. And it, it actually seems to work out. I mean, with a little bit of post VFX help. Each uh, stuntman who wears the suit has his specific shoe inside of it. Within Black Panther, you reference a lot of African customs. For example, with Okay's beadwork on her suit, the Deneva's belt from the Yoruba culture, and the funeral ceremony scene where the entire cast was in white for the procession of T'Challa. White is traditionally worn instead of black in most African cultures. Can you tell me more about your research? Where did it take you and how did you combine so many different cultures and traditions from various countries in Africa and made them modern? Much of my work throughout my career prepared me for this task on Black Panther 1 and Wakanda Forever, the building of a world and the detail that goes into creating that world for the storytelling for the film audience, it requires a deep dive into the nuances of cultures. And because I had the past experience with looking into different eras that existed, I knew what I needed to have as a resource going into a fictitious scenario. So the funeral scene specifically, we utilize the historians that were available to us that told us about the white or the red. It was a choice of white or red. And uh, Ryan Coogler wanted the funeral to be pure white. And then it was a matter of actually unifying all of the tribes of Wakanda, unification of Africa in a sense, where the two funerals that would happen when someone dies, uh, the first one, a smaller, more intimate ceremony, and the second, a uh, bigger uh, ceremony, depending on the deceased and you know how prominent they were. And in this case, it was T'Challa the Black Panther. So it was all of Africa coming together. The beginning phases of that was to take the Zulu tribe and 
you know, paint out a lot of things. You find the the hair and the the leather that we could combine together with the cowrie shells and and actually add more bright white to it. We got the Yoruba uh, drapes and we got their Turkana beadwork and we painted it. So it was a huge journey. We also screen printed our own Wakandan patterns and things onto the materials. And so you see Shuri's cape with the hood that she wears, her dress has the heart-shaped herb symbols on it, which was also used in the in credits, which was lovely to see because we created our own language and, and our own prints for Wakanda. And it really did give it a signature uh, for the film. But it was magnificent to be on set and to see the procession come through when you see Queen Ramonda with the Ishikolo that we 3D printed and then we painted white and her dress that had the Indebele symbols on embroidered on her dress, all tones of, of white to see the Dora Milaje uh, wearing their one shoulder dress. Uh, they carry the, the casket with their exposed arm and to see the beauty of these women out of their Dora Milaje uniform, but also still very beautiful and uniform and strong and this vulnerability and beauty of this exposed arm added to the magnitude of the scene and and following you know behind them if we could have just kept that camera rolling which we did but not in the film you would have seen all the tribes represented together in groups coming through to process into uh, Mount Bishinga where where he's buried. Do you have any other arts or design that inspire your costuming work? It doesn't have to be within clothing. It can be in theatre or music as well. Always. I just like to surround myself with uh, images that inspire me. I started out in costume design in theatre and so I was inspired by, you know, Langston Hughes. I've known rivers. I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood in human veins. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. Douglas Turner Ward and uh, Zora Neale Hurston and uh, Black Theater was kind of my base uh, that I, I learned first. It also led me to James Van Der Zee and Teeny Harris, Paul Robeson. You know, the painters, Jacob Lawrence, and was always examining like, the collages and artwork of many eras of the artists of the of the time i just felt like they represented to me how i would go about achieving color balance and storytelling and you know the cultural influences that influenced their work they influenced me and i wanted to 
make the composition of a scene like one of their photographs or like one of their paintings. Well, anyway, we're going to do a tune called uh, Mobetta Blues. That's what I would uh, try to achieve with, with uh, Mobetta Blues. I studied the jazz giants. Lester Young and Thelonious Monk. I really looked into their personal style and tried to bring that to Mo Better Blues. It's cyclical when I think about my work. I think there are artists who lay the groundwork and that is there for us to be inspired by and take it into another realm or take it to the next level. And I rely on them. I rely on art to help me. And I'm constantly exploring artists, past and present. And finally on the show, for Tall Stories, Isabella Duo explores how colonialism shaped the distinctly Italian architecture of the Eritrean capital. A modernist monument to the plain. The Fiat Taliero service station is frozen both in time and space, with its two 15-metre wings outstretched as if poised for flights. Standing stark against the cream concrete, the tall Fiat typeface imbues this building with a distinctive Italianità. Only when you look up do you see the swirling shapes, translating Fiat into the Amharic alphabets. Because this most Italian of futurist monuments is actually in Asmara, Eritrea. The city of Asmara lies on a rocky plateau 2,500 metres above the Red Sea, and was once the nexus of Benito Mussolini's new Roman Empire, so much so that it was known as Piccola Roma by the late 1930s. But before the Italian occupation of Eritrea in the 1880s, Asmara was just a small village, leaving the Italian architects with an almost blank canvas to experiment with radical designs and create an entirely new and Italian metropolis. The city is scattered with Italian modernist buildings of different schools, Novicento, Rationalism and Futurism. The cinemas, shops, bars and factories feature the telltale signs, abstracted neoclassical lines, columns and arches. In a country consistently under occupation of foreign powers, Asmara's modernist architecture was only revealed to the world again in the 1990s, after Eritrea won independence from Ethiopia following decades of fighting. But this century of brutal conflict and occupation placed Asmara in an architectural time capsule, and exploring the city feels like a journey to another era. As such, in July 2017, Asmara was made a UNESCO World Heritage Site, for being an exceptional example of early modernist urbanism at the beginning of the 20th century and its application in an African context. Asmara is like a catalogue of Italian modernist styles and the Fiat Taliero is an unusual architectural example of Italian futurism, an artistic movement which rejected the past and idealised speed, technology and war. This ideology is stark in Giuseppe Patazzi's winged Fiat garage, just months before he designed the building, Italian aeroplanes dropped chemical weapons across Ethiopia, killing tens of thousands of civilians. 
and that's where futurism departs from other iterations of modernism. It was an architectural style embraced by the Italian fascists, which worshipped war and the modern technology that advanced it. The Fiat garage is an albeit aesthetically pleasing nod to that brutality. Asmara is still crippled by economic and political hardship, with few tourists able to visit the city. But while many of these Italian buildings lay derelict for decades, UNESCO recognition has reinvigorated conservation efforts and funding for 14 of the city's most important historic buildings. The Italian influence still lingers on the city's streets, but it has been embraced by Eritreans living here who have adopted it into their own urban culture. Cycling is booming here, with Asmarans calling bikes bicicletti, like the Italians. And trips to the old wooden pin bowling alleys and art deco cinemas are classic weekend pastimes. Unlike futurism's fathers, Eritreans are embracing the retro and preserving the past. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by San Impi and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week and thank you for listening.